Thanks for joining Cluster Market's seventh lab talk, Advancements in the Technology and Best Practices for NMR Spectroscopy. My name is Sam Choi, and I'm a lab consultant at Cluster Market, and I will be the moderator of this talk. For those who uh, don't know us, uh, Cluster Market is the leading lab scheduling system for R&D labs, and it is used by many NMR facilities around the world. We have recently reached a very important milestone, which we're very proud of. Now we have over 100,000 users on our platform. We're very excited about our strong NMR community, and today's talk is all about NMR. I am happy to discuss best practices and tips with our wonderful guests uh, who actually use our platform as well. We have uh, Johanna Becker-Baldas, Elvin Janssen, Konstantin Lusjanen. Johanna runs the Solid State NMR DNP facility at the BMRZ, which is Center for Biomolecular NMR at Get University Frankfurt. Uh, this lab is headed by Clemens Globitz, and their research focuses on the function and biophysical properties of membrane proteins, which they study under magic angle spinning at high fields. In addition, they use DNP enhancement techniques on these systems, which, for example, enable them to study intermediate states. Uh, thank you, Johanna, for joining us. Next, we have Elvin. Elvin works at Fersh University Amsterdam. He's an organic chemist. Uh, and a few years ago, he became the manager of the NMR core facility. Elvin is responsible for the maintenance of three spectrometers and assists and advises students and researchers about structure elucidation of small molecules by NMR. Together with his team of researchers, he plans to implement metabolomic studies and STD NMR to their laboratory. In addition, he teaches two NMR-related master courses, each on a different track. Thank you, Alvin, for joining us. Um, and then last but not least, we have Constantin, who he is uh, the academic head of analytical services and senior lecturer in the Department of Chemistry at University of Liverpool. He completed his PhD at the University of Lisbon, where he was later a PI of a research group and a manager of the largest NMR facility in Portugal. Since 2012, he has been overseeing the analytical facilities of University of Liverpool, which include NMR spectroscopy, among other instrumentation. They offer support to both teaching and researching, including 50 research groups from various departments. Their NMR facility includes eight instruments ranging from 200 to 500 megahertz that are used in mixed automated and hands-on modes according to users' expertise and equipment type. Thank you very much, Constantine, for joining us today. Just to get started, uh, I would like to ask Johanna in particular, um, what are some advancements in the NMR field? This could be uh, techniques or new exciting technologies that are up and coming. I think I, I, of course, have to tell you things about the solid state NMR perspective. And in the recent years, we have seen the development of ultra-fast probes, so which means we can spin the rotors, which are then very tiny at 100 kilohertz, and detect protons as we have been doing in solution all the time. And this allows us to reduce the amount of sample enormously, and also, of course, gain access to the proton chemical shifts, which is, which is really nice. Other advantages are we are now using, start to use a lot of these optimal control pulses, which makes the uh, setup of, of uh, experiments often faster and easier. 
um, or possible at all if you have very tiny amount of samples where you can't really optimize these cross-polarization steps, which, which we do need. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, how about you, Constantine? Uh, are there any new and upcoming interesting uh, tech or techniques that you are using right now? I believe in NMR spectroscopy, from my perspective, as more a solution person rather than solid state. I would say the main advantage that we bring now are the widely available cryoprobes that are not helium cooled, but nitrogen cooled. So they are uh, known from Brooker as uh, uh, cryoprobe prodigy. So they are, uh, the cryoprobes are known for decades. Uh, they're used, but they're used primarily by biologists. And uh, it's due to very high, um, very elevated running costs. But uh, nitrogen-cooled uh, cryoprobes, they are significantly cheaper to run. And we can even now afford giving access uh, of, to the cryoprobes to our uh, postgraduate and undergraduate students. That was not possible years ago. And also, I would like to mention one new thing also that was recently brought to solid state NMR. So there are new types of probes that are now fully automatic. So that means that there is no need anymore to manually set the magic angle spinning, for instance, so they can be done in automation now. So we hope that we could in the future benefit from these by making solid state NMR as accessible as solution NMR now. And thank you. Thank you for those insights. Um, and lastly, Elvin, do you have any comments to add on new technologies or, or techniques that you've been implementing? Yeah, so we only have solution state uh, NMRs. <clears throat> and for that, I have to go with uh, Constantine about the Prodigy uh, cryoprobe. We, we have two helium, uh, let's say, cooled cryoprobes, one in use and one is standing aside. Indeed, maintenance costs of these cryoprobes are quite high. And um, so we do not have a Prodigy cryoprobe. But I certainly think this is a good uh, development in uh, getting better SN uh, ratios and more sensitive uh, measurements. Absolutely. Other than that, we are currently not uh, investing in super new technologies uh, just currently. Very well. Uh, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for your insights. And now I want to I wanna change gears a little bit, I guess, uh, and talk more about lab operations. Um, which I think a lot of the lab managers that are present right now would uh, benefit to know uh, how other labs are running their operations and how they're dealing with different issues that arise uh, while managing a lab. Uh, could we start maybe with um, general insights uh, within uh, lab operations? Uh, would you like to start, Constantine, since you have, um, I, I think, among us three, the biggest facility? Uh, mixed mode of operation. So we have uh, eight instruments. So they have, there are some specific instruments there that can only be operated manually. For instance, we have very unique high pressure uh, NMR for gas phase. So when we also have uh, some solid state NMR instruments that uh, they are operated manually by uh, experienced users, but majority of the instruments are operated in automation. So we used, we used booking system, well, cluster market booking system that is used either for um, getting access to the menu 
manually operated instruments or um, for automation where we use the time that is booked primarily uh, just an access time. Uh, it was not driven by the COVID, but um, it was just an idea because we have a very large number of users. So we currently have approximately 150 regular users. It's just not possible to have queue in front of the NMR facilities for people who are just not efficient. So we use booking system for users to get access to specific instrument at specific times. So that's how we operate. So users book their time, they bring their samples, they submit them, but we do not use booking system to account for amount of hours that is used by users for NMR because, well, every user have a right to measure what they want suitable, what they find suitable from, from the list of experiments. So it would be not possible for them to, let's say, decide in advance how long the experiment can take. They may adjust it in the middle if they want, mm -hmm. in the middle of the run. So we use primarily booking system to for access to the instrumentation. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Constantine, for, for sharing that information. Elvin, how, how do you manage things in your lab then? How do you operate things uh, on your side? Yeah, so uh, our lab obviously is uh, quite some smaller than uh, Constantine's uh, lab. So we have, uh, the, like you already said in the introduction, three spectrometers. <clears throat> and we have to divide that over uh, 20 to 60 people. It fluctuates because we are also heavily involved in teaching. So we give practical courses and then sometimes um, we can add 20 to 30 bachelor students uh, for instance, uh, in addition to the users. So um, we use, of course, also the custom market uh, booking system. People have to book. Two spectrometers are just uh, walk-in systems with uh, auto samplers. And then our 600 megahertz is only for the higher, let's say, more experienced staff with the cryoprobe as well. And then I spread the level, let's say, of, of experience over the spectrometers. So the bachelor students go to the 300, master and bachelor go to 500 PhDs and uh, postdocs, they, uh, they go to the 600. So I have to spread that a bit because, uh, yeah, we only have three spectrometers and if one breaks, then we already have uh, less alternatives than when you would have nine spectrometers. I can imagine amount of people uh, know how to measure manually to... Uh, because we also have external clients and they also need to uh, have uh, do their measurements and yeah i have to take good care of course obviously as everybody as every manager but uh, we have sometimes relatively a lot of people for a relatively low number of uh, spectrometers so okay thank you elvin and and lastly johanna uh, you focus more on research so yes. uh, could you share a little bit of how you run your facility yeah, so it's, it's a research lab, so much fewer users. It, it, it depends, maybe 10 or something. And they have quite long measurements. And so my main task is to, to get, collect the requests and then to work out a plan that you make sure all the weekends are covered, all the nights are covered, and we don't have gaps in the NMR schedule, or to make sure that you know people that use similar experiments, they measure after each other, so you don't have, you have less probe changes or things like that. And also, not too rarely, I have to also book my own time because then I know these are experiments or these are setups where I need to support these people. And this is also something that has to be taken into account, especially, I didn't say at the beginning, we also have DNP instrumentation and users need quite a lot of training to be able to use that independently. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for giving us uh, a fully research-based uh, focus on, on your facility. Just to uh, implement more discussion amongst our panelists, I just want to ask um, if how you manage maintenance in your facility. Uh, do you tend to do it yourselves or do you have a technician in your team that, that takes care of that? Or uh, do you uh, use OEM solutions or do you have third-party contractors, for example? How, how do you do things, uh, Johanna, in your lab? <laughs> so we have we are very lucky we have a very well trained or knowledgeable I don't know how he so knowledgeable technician he knows a lot about all sorts of hardware so with him my main task at the moment is when something breaks down is to analyze what which part of the equipment is failing and I think most of us have seen changes a lot by the main manufacturer of the NMR machines that support by them has been reduced, especially regarding hotlines and things like that. So we really have to know what is the problem and which part to order and, and this analysis. Yeah, for this, you don't need to know that much about Enema. You have to know about uh, amplifiers and uh, I don't know, electricity and uh, all these things. And we are very lucky to have very good support here. And we are a good team, I think, to, to figure things out and to keep things running and or to find some ideas what to do or to some workarounds. And it's, yeah, and then only then we, we, we have no, usually we know very specifically what we have to ask the vendor of the NMR machines, what to provide, which service or which spare parts. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I don't That's know how absolute. the others do that. <laughs> yes. So, so how, how do you do things constantly in your bigger lab? Well, I have fantastic colleagues who have expertise, who share expertise in, uh, in the mass spectroscopy. So as Johanna uh, said, it's it's not always only about what experiments to measure. It's also necessary to have some expertise in what parts are required and how the parts may affect your measurements. So, well, it's a joint work. I also have a team of technicians, analytical services technician, but most of the work it's, I would say, the, the basic service and basic maintenance, like cryo, cryofields, for instance, that's basically normally done at the technician's level, but something more serious, it's mostly done in discussion with colleagues. We don't have service contracts, unfortunately. Well, as for large facilities, we all know that it is nearly impossible to get service contracts due to the very high costs of those. It's for the... <laughs> for eight and my instrument, the service contract probably will be larger than the budget that existed <laughs> in the university, which is yeah. too expensive. And we try to do as much as we can based on our expertise and collaboration with colleagues. Some things obviously we can't do, so then we need to uh, have ad hoc uh, engineers visits or send parts back to the factory. So I guess... In the large facilities, it's always like this, something we do ourselves, something we can't do, and then we need to invite somebody. I think it also is, uh, to just to add to this, we are all doing, have a kind of research. Yeah, we, we are serving research people or doing research, and there's always, there's always some downtime, which, which is simply there, and people accept that, and it's, there's no, it's not, it's not a hospital where some patients are there which need to get this done, and if you it's unfortunate and we try to do our best, but I think the cost of these maintenance contracts is not in relation to what the risk downside means. 
Makes sense. Makes absolute sense. Um, Ellen, how how do you do things in your facility for when something breaks down? Yeah, so I'm the manager, but I'm also the technician. So I'm actually doing everything uh, myself. Um, I mean, I have to as much as I'm uh, able to. Uh, so I'm also, uh, like you said in the beginning, I was known with interpretation part of NMR, but just a few years ago, I came into the management of the facility. And um, so I also had to learn about the pulse sequences and about the maintenance, all these things. And uh, that's quite another expertise. So I still need to, to learn a lot about that. Um, but over the years, over the few years, I, I, I am able to fix uh, some things. I totally agree with my other two NMR uh, facility colleagues that uh, the costs of the vendor, let's say, they have risen uh, quite uh, substantially over the years. So I also try to um, email um, and ask questions to fellow colleagues in the Netherlands mm. who maybe can uh, provide me with advice to uh, solve some things. And mm -hmm. so, I still so have some, sorry. Uh, so network is very important uh, in these cases yeah, yeah, yeah. when you don't have the, the resources, right, to, to do things yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. on your it's, own. It's very many fellow colleagues they recognize your your uh, issues you have with with hardware or or, uh, or other things. And uh, but still, I have also good contacts with uh, with uh, someone from Brugge, a uh, few from uh, from the yeah, which are the main vendor of our uh, facility. And they, yeah, they support me sometimes also with really very good uh, advice. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm able to, I try to solve it also via that way. Okay. But no third, third parties for us. No. Okay, makes sense. Makes sense. So um, I just want to do a follow-up question. What do you think are some of the pros and cons of you know if you if you have the budget of you know being able to have these contracts or use third-party contractors versus uh, doing it yourselves or within an in-house team, what would be the pros and cons of each? Um, well, if I if I would be given a budget, that would be the first thing that I will do. <laughs> it liberates huge amount of time for research and it liberates huge amount of time for teaching. And also it's uh, for the large facility like ours, maybe if we have uh, one instrument that requires service and, and it's down, it's normally not that noticeable, but for the smaller facilities, getting one instrument off is very significant. So that's why even for large facilities, if I would have money, I would absolutely go for the service contract. I manage several types of instrumentation. Analytical services have approximately 25 different uh, instruments. So that's why for those instrumentation where we can afford service contract, we do it. It's, uh, it also guarantees, we have instrument that maybe one per university. So we cannot afford having it down. Mm. So that's why obviously service contracts also guarantee, it's not that much that it's cheaper or something. It also fast, it's generally faster because the on service contract, the companies um, uh, give priorities to the, to the customers on the service contracts. But if I, if I would have enough budget to cover NMI, I would definitely go for this. Okay, definitely makes sense. Um, just, how about, yeah, Johanna? Yeah, ahead. I just thought, it, I think it really depends also on your type of NMR machine. Yeah, of because course. I think if you, uh, yeah, it's, it's for the routine 
things where also you have the routine problems and they, the companies can, if they have time, help quickly. I think for this, my, my feeling is for the very special applications. It's, I think probably, a, probably I don't know, you don't know if they even offer a service contract, but probably there you need to know by yourself because it's, uh, it's, it's like a DNP machine that there's so many things that have to work at the same time. And you have to understand the system by yourself completely. And you can only do that if you do the troubleshooting with the help of, of Bruca, maybe that's, that's nice. But I think that's, yeah, if, if you cannot call them every four weeks and that's how often these machines have problems. <laughs> yeah, um, makes sense. Um, Elvin, anything to add to this, uh, pros and cons? Yeah, so we, we had a, a, a service contract for our CryoPro. It, uh, this was the last year, five-year contract, and that went, uh, that went well. Um, and yeah, the, the, the pro of obviously is that you know that somebody um, uh, main, maintains the, the hardware and who is uh, skilled and licensed to, to, to do that, and there is guarantee. If you, are, if you do not have the expertise, then of course you may uh, risk that you damage something and the costs might be even higher if you're very unlucky. Um, with everything, you need to do certain things a few times before you do it the correct way. Yeah, so then, then it's good that you have a skilled person in the vicinity who can teach you those things. If you don't have that, then you, yeah, you have to be a bit more careful and maybe ask uh, the vendor indeed to come by to do it one or two times, certain things, and then you can. There, there are things you can do yourself, absolutely. And mm -hmm. if I can, I definitely uh, will do that. Okay, makes sense. If I may, if I may just add to what uh, uh, to what um, both of my colleagues said, it it is yeah, it's absolutely. Uh, for instance, in my facility, Amount uh, and there is one taboo that we never touch. At least I never touch. These are probes because cinema probes in particular well cryoprobe is absolutely out of question because uh, when i've seen uh, what it's what's inside this cryoprobe i've decided that no i will never touch it myself but yes everything absolutely if we can do something ourselves like uh, traditional probes room temperature probes cleaning and uh, coil replacement and all these things we could do ourselves sometime but um, the more complex props more advanced props we need broker to 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 service that if i might just also there is one question in the in the in the question and in the question and answer panel about the using up uh, independent uh, service providers well for in the mass spectroscopy i'm not sure that even exists at least in the united kingdom i'm not quite sure because broker usually does not disclose the specifications and the blueprints of their um, parts so basically, if the there is a good chance if uh, if we contract somebody who is not certified by Brooker to open the amplifier or open the probe and break something, and Brooker will simply not accept this later for repair, or the cost of repair would be very high. At least I never had experience of. I don't even know if there are any companies uh, who provides an MR. Uh, repair services they might exist it's just i never had any experience with these kind of companies 
I think, mm. I think there are actually companies, but also we're not using them, especially because if we send things to Bruker for repair, it's usually probes and uh, they build them and I think they should repair them. <laughs> and we have, yeah, we have very special probes. And I think this is, but uh, yeah, touching probes, I think if you do, you also have some solid state probes, I guess. I think the, to have to open the stage is something that is probably not, to be avoided because something, you know, a cap is lost or something, and then yeah. or the rotor is stuck, or I, I don't know. So, so these are things. Uh, but as as soon as the RF is affected, there, this is really beyond what we can do. So these probes, they they, they go to broker. Or if mm -hmm. this data needs replacement, it's also something I we're not doing. Although some colleagues do that, data replacement. So uh, for all the attendees, if you have any questions, please uh, put them on the Q&A. We'll revisit them at the end. Uh, we'll have a few minutes to answer questions from uh, everyone that's here. Um, and so uh, maybe, can I ask a question to, to Alvin? So if you, if you yes, say you, yes, you, have, you manage all these things alone, so how do you, so, but with cryogens, you have somebody to support you. No, 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 I do because everything alone. Yeah. Wait, wait, what, what happens if you're on holiday or when you're sick? Because <laughs> uh, I haven't been on holiday for 10 years. No, no, that's not, that's not true. I have a backup. I have a backup. Because I think that's also good or sometimes lacking that you, for certain things, then there's only this one person who knows something and then... Yeah. True. Which is but, not, uh, so, not a yeah, hardware downtime. It's a, it's, a, it's a people's downtime then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So with uh, with nitrogen refill, I have indeed a backup if I go for a holiday, and uh, the same backup is also my let's say assist me with the helium refill. So it's always more convenient to do that with two persons instead mm. of uh, one. And but we had a big discussion during this Corona time. What happens if three of us are in quarantine, and what do we do, and things like that? <laughs> I guess Those it's even more difficult in a too. smaller yeah. facility. Yeah, those were exciting times, but I didn't get sick, uh, so that was, uh, I was lucky. That's great. That's yeah. great. Um, I, I would just like to ask, uh, since we were talking about probes and how complex they were, um, do you have any tips for everyone that's here for um, increasing the lifespan of, of probes or, or the instruments in general? What kind of um, best practices do you have in place for your users? Um, could you start consulting? You know, this is a very difficult question. <laughs> the answer can be very, very long. But if I may, if I may just approach it from two uh, opposite sides, from the management of the facilities, naturally having more instruments is better because uh, uh, the instrument obviously has lifespan, but they also have duty cycle. If we have free instrument and operate 100% of the time, we obviously reach the end of life much faster. But if you operate at 75% of the time, as we are usually recommended by the manufacturer, we will reach it much, much uh, later. So we need always have a backup. We are lucky to have backup for some, but not for everything. Uh, and uh, naturally, as more alternative we got, as better. In terms of from the user's perspective, uh, I, you know, this um, COVID situation taught us one very important thing. If our users will prepare samples carefully and they will use gloves for everything and they will wipe their tubes and not label them with the, with the glass marker, then the lifespan of the probe is dramatically increased. Because, so I would say careful sample preparation and um, appropriate 
um, consumables for NMR spectroscopy, in particular tubes and cups, we restricted here the use of um, uh, NMR tubes and NMR cups to specific type and specific manufacturer due to the reason uh, if we allow 1 million different types of tubes, in particular disposable tubes that are frequently used in a non-disposable way, we break all our robotic interfaces basically because uh, the tube cyber is too heavy or not sufficiently heavy and basically it jumps too high or too low and breaks the parts of the robotic interfaces. So I would say from user's perspective, careful sample preparation, uh, cleanliness of the of the uh, consumables, and uh, and also the restriction on the types of um, consumables that should be used. In our case, improve dramatically the we uh, the usability and the lifespan. Okay, great. That's uh, that's some great insights for for everyone here attending. Um, uh, how do you uh, recommend doing things, Elvin? Um, <clears throat> so with the consumable part, I totally agree with uh, Constantine. Uh, only specific type of tubes, not the, the, not the cheapest ones. They should not break uh, easily, uh, especially indeed for the auto samplers. Um, and other, in addition to that, I also, most of the users, they will use automation for their, most of their measurements. So then they do not, come close to the magnets. Uh, the auto sampler uh, inserts the sample. <clears throat> and uh, in general, they use then uh, standard uh, experiments for their, um, uh, for their research. Um, and if they require uh, um, uh, additional measurements, then I'll, I'll do that for them. For instance, a high temperature, or I have to, to change parameters in the, in the uh, parameter set. So I'll do that or I'll train one or two people who are a bit longer here for research and they can do that themselves as well. So limit the, I limit the people who do manual measurements um, mm -hmm. and then automation. We also have many bachelor students, for instance, who enter an MR lab for the first time. We don't want them yet to, not immediately to do manual measurements. If you only have three spectrometers, let's say, and something breaks. So um, yeah, limit, uh, limit manual measurements is what I do. And then of course, also ask them to buy uh, good quality tubes yes, and definitely clean them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, makes sense. Uh, Johanna, how, how do you think on the solid side of NMR? So most solid measurements are magic angle sample spinning. So we have these little rotors, which spin very fast or not so fast, depending on their size. And these rotors are very expensive, so they're reuse for sure. And the main point, or which I think was is the most important in running a solid MR lab is, of course, people, there's no automation, so we do everything manually, to train people when, how to realize when a rotor doesn't spin and what not to do with a rotor that doesn't seem to spin. So if a rotor doesn't spin at certain parameters, doesn't reach a very certain low spinning speed, we have defined that very precisely, just stop. Don't continue, find a problem. Don't spin up a rotor that behaves oddly because this will first, this, it will end up in a crashing of the rotor. Okay, then your rotor is gone, but also very often this data is affected. And this repair is very costly 
and time consuming. So the probe will be away for at least three months and the cost will be, I don't know, close to uh, 10,000 euros. So you should really, really, really avoid rotor crashes. This is something you cannot avoid in each case, but you can reduce them a lot. And I think this has to be very clearly communicated to the users how to spin the rotors. So this has changed a little bit because uh, so things have changed since now there's the MIS-3 um, uh, spinning unit and this is much more automated. This is good and bad at the same time. I'm not so happy with all of the profiles so they need improvement I think there but also maybe reduces some of these risks. But again, I think even in this case, yeah, users should be trained to re recognize a non not well spinning rotor. Yeah, it, it seems like, yeah, it seems like uh, there is a, a, a continuous um, theme across all the answers looks like uh, you definitely need to prepare the users uh, to teach them, to train them how to recognize issues and how to prepare samples correctly, not to damage uh, the instrument. So, so training is something very, and, very important. And I think you need the atmosphere of, you know, there is no stupid question because yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to, after doing years and years of NMR, everything seems easy and logical, but uh, yeah, each student generation has to learn things newly and yeah, they should not be afraid to ask. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a great comment, and I, I think we can apply that on everything in life, right? Not only for for NMR. There are no stupid questions, even the simpler ones. Definitely, um, excellent. So, since we're talking about tubes and consumables, um, do you do anything to rate uh, to reduce the waste of consumables in your lab, um, Elwin? Where do you do anything specific in your lab? Do you reuse tubes or or something about the uh, the gas that you use, how do you take care of that? So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. So if the correct tubes are ordered, I'm fine with uh, reusing them uh, several times. Um, I'm just um, ask the users to check their tubes regularly, especially the top where the cap goes on. As soon as there is a crack, then they can use the tubes for other purposes than, uh, than NMR. Um, um, and I also, yeah, always explain that, yeah, so we use standard five millimeter tubes. So 0.6 milliliters go in there for your four centimeters, which is the ideal height for the standard five millimeter probes. And uh, if they would use uh, 0.6 milliliters, they can also save up uh, the deuterated solvents a bit more. Um, I mean, oh, a couple of times you are, quite able to see actually in a pester pipette, uh, these, these, these standard glass pipettes, how much 0.6 milliliters uh, is, and then, uh, yeah, you can save up uh, solvent as well. So reuse tubes, but not, not too much, not too often, and uh, yeah, save solvent as well. Okay, definitely. Um, uh, how do you do things on the on the solid side, Johanna? Is there any anything you do to reduce uh, waste or overuse of consumables? Mm, so so with, with the rotors, of course, everybody wants to have a lot of them and to keep or never unpack your sample in case there's a measurement you still have to do. So I have a list. So each rotor has a number. I have a list who has it and 
then I yeah, ask people, you know, are you really sure you need that many rotors? Can you give some back? Because if everybody has two just in case, you will have 20 rotors which are not used and they're really expensive. Another thing is then we have these little plastic inserts to, you know, center pack the sample or the caps and which need replacement. And, uh, and, and I have a stock of these things which are more or less, yeah, if, if a cap looks odd, it needs replacement, of course, but I try to put not too many of these things in the re in the box, basically, because if there's plenty, they seem to go fast. If there's just five or so, people seem to be more aware that this is not an endless supply. <laughs> Makes sense, definitely. Um, how do more you... psychological, I guess. Yes, yes, uh, the psychological pressure. Uh, how do you do things constantly in your bigger lab? You know, it's, it's difficult to say because I also want to say that uh, we are trying to reuse the tubes and we are trying to minimize the amount of solvents. But, you know, it's quite difficult in a large facility. And uh, although the same rules obviously valid, we, we try not to, we restrict type of the tube and we, um, uh, in the United Kingdom, although we have, we had before, a number of suppliers of the deuterated solvents, it's a bit more challenging now because majority of the solvents are coming from Europe. And uh, so the solvents more expensive, the transportation is more expensive, the delivery times are much longer. So, I mean, it's naturally uh, working towards saving on everything. But my major problem are the tubes because the tubes are now so, so cheap compared to what it was 10 years ago, for instance. And it's quite difficult to convince users to reuse the tubes. We try our best, but unfortunately it does not work 100% of the time. Maybe if the tubes also will be of restricted access, <laughs> maybe it will also improve <laughs> the reuse. But also there is a second side of this, uh, recycling and reuse. We strongly encourage users to inspect all the tubes all the time, because in particular with cryoprop, cryoprop repairs take forever. It's months of time. And uh, so that's why we encourage users, even if they suspect that a tube was it's not symmetric anymore, or there is a crack, or it's cheap, or anything else, immediately bin it and get a new one. So it does not really help, because I think with my way of explaining things, users are scared that if they break something, they will leave the entire university without a cryoprobe. So that's why uh, <laughs> it's, from that perspective, it's, we need to find a golden mean when it is still usable, but at the same time to ensure that the tube doesn't break inside. But I believe, Johanna, it's the same in solid state cinema. Sometimes, as you say, if the rotor doesn't produce similar sound and doesn't rotate in the same way, you probably would avoid using it and just get something else. It's probably the same in solid state cinema. Yes, uh, we, we have a rotor tester actually. So you can put, you can, you can test, you, you don't even have to put the sum, you can test the rotor in this extra testing thing without risking a probe. And if it spins there, then you can put a sample, I guess. Yeah. Just if I may add also one element of saving that is, uh, it's a bit of behind the scene. 
I think the, the main running cause, besides repairs, of course, are the cryogens, in particular liquid helium. And uh, well, we are very lucky enough to have the helium recovery system that was built some decades ago by amazing German engineers that really uh, worked up to recently. We currently make a major refurbishment, but it, it allowed us to recover nearly oil, all boil off helium from the instrument. So it was the full cycle system. It is a full cycle system that has not only the collector and purifier, but also has a, a cold box so that produce liquid helium. So we can recover and reuse this. That is a great way of saving and it's extremely sustainable because helium uh, price will only increase. It's a very rare resource and with increase of the frequency or the strength of the magnetic field, magnets are becoming larger. So that's why um, in our university, we invest into the recovery of helium. And we would like eventually to have every single instrument that use helium in that system, whether it will be possible in the nearest future or not, we don't know, but at least we definitely will try. That's, um, that's super interesting. So. Um... I was just about to ask a follow-up question about, you know, cryogens and, and different gases that you use and how you met, if you have any tips for, for other lab managers to, to you know, reduce the, the, the consumption of these gases, if there are any best practices. Um, Alvin, uh, any insights there? Um, uh, no, I would love to have a system like Constantine uh, has as well. I think that's the, the, the most significant way to to, uh, to save uh, helium. And other than that, I do not know how I can more efficiently refill helium and nitrogen than I'm currently doing. Um, yeah, no, I would, yeah, I would love to have a helium recovery system as well. Okay, maybe you can um, ask that in your next budget for next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, it's if if I'm talking about the, the the helium, the cryogens, for the very small facilities, the the full system that produces liquid helium. Well, if you have ten NMI instruments, it is sustainable, but the initial investment would be huge. For the small facility that has a couple of NMI instruments the partial system that only recover the boil of gas and then you can sell it back to to the supplier of helium in exchange of some liquid helium would be significantly cheaper we did a large long exercise of calculating how much it is it will cost and uh, what is sustainable and what is not but then for the large facilities for the like university-wide facilities it's really sustainable but over a long period of time because that's very expensive investment uh, i would say 10 instrument would be my number where it is really makes a difference uh, to have the full cycle system for the for the smaller number of instruments the partial system will work perfectly you can have it with three instruments even with one instrument if you just obtain gas there are many manufacturers, well, not many, but quite a few manufacturers of this system. It's become more and more popular. And uh, even Brooker announced in the last month that they, they now built those systems 
to collect the gas and purify. It's a new generation that they're announcing in, in the MAC conference or just announced in the, in the MAC conference. Presumably in the next Brooker and the MAC user meeting, we will all hear about this. I don't know how much it costs, but if it's manufactured by Brooker, at least we know whom to approach if something is wrong. Yeah, definitely. I think this is a very good tip for the partial um, gas recovery system for, for smaller facilities to implement, definitely. I think the, the main advantage of we also uh, collect our helium and liquefy it as a big facility. And, um, and the main advantage is that we get the helium when we need it. So we don't have to pre-order. And especially nowadays, there's at least um, a little bit higher security. Of course, this won't last forever. But I think that's also an advantage, uh, not about saving and costs, but availability of helium is, is better. But yeah, for this, of course, uh, now, larger facilities needed, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And, and also um, supply chain issues, right, that we have that we can see nowadays with uh, transport and, and importing and exporting things. Which yeah, is, that, that's the main harder. problem because the, as an NMR lab, you have, there's nothing you can do. Re you reduce your amount of helium, as Elvin says. And so there's really, yeah, so you're fixed with this amount and you need to get this amount. And there's, you can wait a few weeks, but that's it. Yeah, definitely. So it seems like uh, you can have it, well, not immediately, but in a closer period of time, you can have helium at your disposal uh, if you're recycling it. Um, and definitely. Um, do we have any other best practices uh, that we want to add or share with our attendees uh, before we start wrapping up this conversation? Um, Constantine, anything else you would like to share? I would say one of the ways of the efficient use, it's, it's, it's training of users. We invest a lot in training. So we train undergraduate students and we are lucky enough to have one of the instrument in the teaching lab. So that's teaching NMI instrument. It's a full grade research instrument. So it's not a bench top NMI. And we invest into teaching both undergraduate and postgraduate students for PhD students. We provide a specific module. It's a large module and different NMR applications. So we strongly encourage users to get as much NMR practice in manual mode as they can, because in particular, then PhD students reach the end of their PhD. There are always more complex experiments that are required mm -hmm. that are not always can be achieved through automation, particularly if the time uh, is uh, limited. So I would say training and teaching of NMR spectroscopy is essential for us. Yes. Perfect. Um, Johanna, any other uh, last best practices to share before we move on to the questions that we have? Yeah, maybe one thing is uh, for some, yeah, routine things which uh, have to be done in a certain way. I, I do have little, you know, recipes or how, how to do this. And these pieces of paper are at the NMR machine and there are users that read them and some don't, but the users that read them, they actually also, uh, tell the others about it somehow. So, so just to keep this knowledge not only available by you know, information from me, but to have some other ways to access this. This we have to, can still improve a lot, but uh, for me, I think this, this is also useful. Yes, definitely. So uh, sharing your tips and tricks within uh, your lab for other users to be able to um, apply them for their experiments. 
Um, Elvin, any last uh, comments for uh, tips? Yeah, maybe a bit of follow-up of what Johanna just said. I um, regularly visit uh, a few research groups which are using our the, the NMR facility. <clears throat> and there I give a short presentation about what experiment could be handy for their research. Um, and then I, I contact one of the researchers and, and uh, use one of their compounds to actually show them the people of that research group how, uh, how this or that experiment could work for them. Um, so uh, yeah, you sort of spread the knowledge what else is possible than these basic proton and carbon and cozy experiments and things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's... Okay, excellent, so thank keep you. keep the people informed, yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So looks like training and, and communication is very important um, for keeping uh, your lab running efficiently. Um, so I would like to just wrap up a, a little bit and we'll move on to the questions that we have. Um, we'll start with one here that says, um, could we use NMR to characterize nanoparticles? Um, I'm assuming these are more um, chemical nanoparticles maybe. So um, Constantine, could you take a crack at this one? <laughs> it's a difficult question because I okay. really don't know the answer. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> If it is in solution, uh, if it is, I only have experience with the capped nanoparticles, those that have ligands attached to them. So presumably those can be characterized, but there are more efficient methods to characterize nanoparticles. Uh, in particular, if, the, if they are relating with small nanoparticles of a couple of nanometers, they will behave as, in, as uh, basically molecules in solution. So there would be standard solution in MR then applied and they can be characterized, but the larger nanoparticles above 10 nanometers, they will already behave from my, from my understanding, will be have a solid compound. So probably they can be better analyzed by the solid state in MR. And I would say we have nanoparticles groups here. They use NMR, but in a very limited way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, Johanna, can, can we do this via solid state NMR? As, as Constantine said, it really depends on the type of nanoparticle. As soon as you can sediment it, you, you can do this. I, I think when you want to do this, you really have to know your question. And sometimes there are some, you could maybe, yeah, whether you look at the surface or the inner part, you could do some CP experiment to filter out some things where you have hydration on the surface and no protons in the inner part and, and do something like that. But it, yeah, it, it really depends on your question. But I would also guess it's more solids application mm -hmm. if it's a nanoparticle. Okay. <laughs> okay. And oh, but that's <laughs> okay, thank you, Johanna. Elvin, do you have any um, insights or experience uh, with uh, nanoparticles? No, that's quite out of my comfort zone. So I can, sorry, I cannot give any useful information about it. That's good. That's all right. Um, we have another question here about uh, test tubes. It says, um, how do you check test tubes for misalignment? I usually roll, roll them carefully on the bench, and if they roll oddly, I discard them. Um, that's a, I, well, I guess I did that during my uh, undergraduate as well sometimes. But Elwin, do you have any other tests that you can do other than you know visual uh, ex, um, looking at it uh, at the test tube? Do you have any other tips? Uh, no, only only visually I uh, test them, and indeed rolling or testing. Um, prevent them from being dried in, uh, in ovens 
um, are classical things to prevent it. But to check it other way than visual uh, ways, uh, no, no, I don't have any tips. Okay. Um, I never wrote tubes. I never wrote tubes during my PhD and during my studies. I uh, I don't know what is what means misalignment, and it's a, from the perspective of the quality of spectra. I would like to say that our users just measure the spectrum and see if the resolution is uh, affected, and they just move the solution into a different tube. I don't know really. We never made any tests of alignments. We try, uh, as I mentioned, we restrict the type of the tube that we get, and those that we get. Uh, the manufacturer guarantees that they checked one by one. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's, that's why I don't really know. For, presumably for disposable tubes, I remember when we used them before, they, uh, there are sometimes black sheep in, in, uh, in the amount of those tubes. So just basically by measuring spectrum. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then I think we have one for the solid state side for Johanna. Um, how do you manage the rotor test? So how, how do you do that? And uh, for example, where you could get one? Um, so, so this rotor test devices, as you can buy them by Bruca. They are very expensive as usual. <laughs> and we have the form, not the version that's sold today, but the predecessor of that. And there's no management needed in a sense. They're just sitting in the lab. And if somebody wants to test their rotor, they just go there and test it. And they can see whether it spins or not. So I'm not sure what the question, how the question is meant. You have no temperature. At the moment, we don't have a temperature control on this because you would need extra unit for that. Um, but usually we don't spin them to the highest speed when the sample is in. So if people want to test their packed rotors, they just see whether it can do a few thousand kilohertz and then can do that a few minutes without temperature control. Um, okay. Without killing your, your protein. Yes, Hopefully. definitely. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, and then we have a last question here. It says um, that uh, this person is managing a big NMR core facility with around 150 users. So quite a big facility. Um, I am really interested in signing up for cluster market, but they're worried about the adoptions uh, by the users. How uh, did you, or how were you able to enforce or entice your users to use cluster market and, and jump on the platform? Um, Constantine, how, how did you do that in your facility? It was basically effortless because our previous booking system was very, very old. And basically, we couldn't run it anymore because of the security issues. It was written in a specific language that was not supported anymore. So then we found cluster market, and basically, it was no, if I might say it in a, in a, not in a very good way, we had no choice. We switched to something modern that works well. And uh, indeed, at the beginning, uh, we started with relatively small group of users, so we only switched for manual uh, measurements to use this system, but when we even adapted it for undergraduate teaching, so we have a separate facility created in a cluster market for undergraduate teaching where we have every year 750 students. So it's relatively effortless. There are obviously, I believe that uh, some convincing sometimes is required, but to be honest, the system over years, we started to use it quite a few years ago when it was still called book kit. And uh, I would say a system evolved over years. Uh, it looks more user-friendly now from my perspective. So it was not really a lot of effort. 
Mm -hmm. Thank you, Constantine. Um, how did you do things, Elvin? How, how were you able to entice or, or bribe your users to, to jump on a, on a new platform? Yeah, we had a, uh, before this a homemade um, booking system, which worked also very well, but uh, then it had to change to another server and, and IT things. So uh, I uh, got to uh, book it back then, cluster market nowadays as well. And also, uh, in, in general, quite effortless that uh, people, they, they make their reservation so that they know they have their time on the NMR. And for overnight measurements, uh, people have to stick on that. And sometimes I'm quite strict. So if somebody did not uh, register, then I'll just um, uh, go to that person and ask if he or she has registered. And if not, please do it. Or make room for the people who have because we are very our nights are full uh, with the measurements our capacity uh, currently is sometimes low <clears throat> um, but that's very scarce most of the people use it without any effort so it works okay. pretty well that's great uh, and johanna how, how was your experience with with this did you have to buy them donuts or something for no, i think it's the was it the other way around we started to use it in the wet lab and then it was kind of natural to also have the NMR machines on it. Um, and I think as a manager, or who, the person, who, what you do, the people have to follow There's If they, if they don't book the NMR time, whatever system you give them, they, they just won't have NMR time. So I don't think it's that complicated unless they're completely against it and have a different system before that we just used Google Calendar, but it's a small, yeah. The solid side part is, is a small, few people, few machines so that was also an option. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, I know we are uh, right on time, but we have a couple more questions. Here's one that asks, um, we are a big group with 200 plus users. Um, how can I set up different groups and manage them, edit and search individual users by some ways? So I, I can answer this one. Uh, in cluster market, you can um, manage uh, different groups of users by creating um, customized groups and you can set different rules on each group. And then uh, searching individual users, you could do that on a user tab that we have well organized. Um, we have two other questions that uh, Constantine was nice enough to answer them, uh, typing it, but I'll read them out loud so, so users will, will know them as well. Um, uh, talking about the, the recovery in here, um, it, it, someone's asking, what's the percentage? Um, Constantine replied that they recover around 50% of boil of gas and they liquefy them to have helium. And it can be up to from 80 to 90%, but it will depend on the configuration of your facility. Uh, and of course, a lot of technical details influence the recovery rate of the gases. And can I just add one tiny detail? Maybe it was not clear. Those 50% is what we actually produce in liquid helium. So we technically get more gas, but something is lost during purification, of mm -hmm. course, because there are no perfect processes. So it's worse 50% is what we received as a liquid helium from our system. So it would be slightly higher, maybe 60%, I would say, uh, of the gas. It also strongly depends how instruments are configured and how they are positioned, because we have uh, in chemistry, chemistry site is not one unique place. There is that three rooms in different parts of the building. So as long as your connections, as more infrastructure you need, as more losses you get. Helium is very light, it's very difficult. So there are there is always some losses in the in the piping and so on. So it is 
it will strongly depend if you have one unique room with everything inside you can recover up to nine up to 90 percent of your gas okay that's um that's super interesting maybe to add on to this because now when you get a new nmr machine in the past it has the people have been very reluctant the people charging the magnets very reluctant to do that at the connected to the recovery system and i think broker has is changing this so it's worth talking to them how they can install your magnet and recover helium the helium used for cooling during quench might be more difficult but i think nowadays this is really something one has to think about Mm -hmm, yeah, we develop our system with Brooker. So when we started to think about this, the system that we that we own uh, originally was developed for different type of instrumentation. So we, uh, ten years ago, we built that part that connects NMR to it. So we contacted Brooker because there are a lot of technical details that only Brooker know in terms of what should be the maximum pressure in your system, what should mm -hmm. be the maximum minimum flow. So they they are very very keen in help with this. So they will very very useful so in our case we were very lucky to have them on board so they basically advise us which parts we need to add to the magnets mm -hmm, definitely um and then we have uh one other question here uh which is about um uh using cluster market how do you manage booking for users who require less than 15 minutes of time on the machine um so uh, i uh, can answer this probably without you reading it would be you see uh we use a different way of managing so what we book in the system is not really that acquisition time we book the access time to our instrumentation we have too many users that's why we cannot physically schedule 150 people coming during the day to the same instrument it will just not work so what we ask them we ask them to think rationally and to bring more than one sample so instead of going four times with one tubes to the NMI instrument that they can group this and come once with four tubes for instance then those 15 minutes would be not the overall time of measurements there would be that time required for them to place uh, tubes inside the robot program them change something clean after them and so on so that's how we do it's not an ideal scenario but uh, that's how we adapted it for our facility it is much easier and we don't use those uh, minutes booked for counting the overall usage time and as well as uh, cluster market we want to support the, the nmr community and we know that sometimes uh, the experiments run for a minute or even less right the, the runtime of an nmr uh, sample so um we are looking into lowering that uh, time for uh for five minutes or even less so we're considering that and, and looking into it it's on our roadmap so uh we'll get there as well um so i think those are all of the questions um so i, I would just like to thank everyone uh that has been uh, with us for over an hour and thank our our splendid guests for today constantine johanna and elwin i just want to thank you uh very much for uh, being here and sharing your experiences and insights with everyone um and just to do a quick summary, we talked about uh, different advancements in NMR technology and different techniques that our guests are using uh, in their facilities. We touched upon um, operations in NMR labs, including maintenance, how they do things, um, tips of how to increase lifespans of instruments and probes, uh, tips about uh, how they manage consumables and reducing waste, even recycling some of the uh, cooling gases and uh, different best practices around the lab in general, uh, including uh, a lot of um, heft in training and communication with your users. 
Um, so with that, I just want to thank everyone again. Um, and hopefully we'll be seeing you on our next lab talk. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.